Now let's turn to Ruth chapter 1 again. Page 306. And verse 14. Ruth chapter 1 at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, so far in this book of Scripture, the spotlight has been on Naomi. And uh, in many ways, uh, it's a book about her, as much as a book about Ruth. But the spotlight has been on her largely due to the fact that it was her decision primarily uh, to leave Bethlehem in the land of Israel and to go to Moab. And now, ten years later, she is conscious, as she says herself, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. Now, of course, the Lord is still very much for her. She is still, of course, a believer. God is her God. But as she puts it, the hand of the Lord is against her. And in the sense in which uh, the scriptures speak of chastisement, that's true, because God has turned in some way against her. He is disciplining her. Uh, when God appeared to Jacob uh, beside the brook Jabbok, he fought with him. He wrestled with him. He took the posture of an adversary for a while in order to teach a lesson. And it's in that sense that he comes against Naomi too. And we saw last time that clearly the loss of her husband almost immediately after going there and then shortly afterwards, the loss of both her sons, uh, she understands to be the Lord speaking to her. But after 10 years, she hears that the famine is over. And that, of course, leaves her with a decision to make. And that's whether to stay or whether to return. Now, she had this decision to make already when her husband died. And that would have been a good time for herself and her sons to return, but instead they stayed and they further settled. The sons married and so on. This time, God confronts her with the decision again. Will she stay in Moab or retrace her steps and go back to the promised land? And this time, thankfully, she doesn't linger. It's always a mercy when God comes a second time with a second opportunity to put something right. This time she doesn't linger. We read that she arose and that she went forth and that she returned. Now, just as the journey from Bethlehem to Moab was a spiritual backsliding, so the return journey from Moab to Bethlehem is a spiritual repentance. It's a restoration. And, of course, the word repent is the word return in the Hebrew. It's just the same thing. To repent is just to go back. It is to turn back, to turn around, and to go towards God, to start walking in the right direction. 
I think I mentioned just not that long ago that repentance, of course, begins in the heart. It is essentially a heart thing. And uh, significantly, the Greek word for repentance in the New Testament means to change the mind. It's an internal change. In the Hebrew, uh, the word is an external word, to, to turn around. So it's, it's quite interesting that when you put the Hebrew and the Greek together, you get a total picture. It's a, a revolution inside that is accompanied by a, a turning around outside and a walking in the opposite direction. So to repent is to change, it's to turn. That's why when we speak of being converted, um, we don't just speak of a person being born again, we speak of a person being converted. In other words, being born again means that they have changed inside. Being converted means that that expresses itself outside. They've turned around and started to walk in a different direction. So if you're genuinely repenting, that will be a visible thing. There will be change in your life. And if you can undo something, you'll undo it. You won't just be sorry about it, but you'll undo it. Um, You won't sit in Moab and say, oh, well, I wish I hadn't come to Moab. I'm genuinely sorry that I came to Moab. You'll get up and you'll go back out of Moab. If you steal something, you won't just be sorry that you've stolen it. You'll restore it. If you sin publicly... Well, you won't just be sorry that you sinned publicly, you'll repent publicly. And so it's fitting that Naomi just doesn't say, I wish I hadn't done it. She puts it right, she arises, she goes out, and she returns. Now, I'll say more about this repentance later, but it's very familiar to us because of the the prodigal son in the parable, who says, I will arise and I will go to my father. And he arose, and he went to the Father. And for yourself, too, it's not enough to be sorry for your sin uh, and to wallow in that sorrow and to be negative about it and to be regretful. Regret, remember, is a negative emotion. There's not really much use in it, to be quite honest. Uh, What you need is the positivity of repentance, to arise and go to your Father. And you need to do that. You need to move and to go to God in confession and restoration. Now, as Naomi leaves, um, and she confesses this later, she feels very empty. She feels that she had gone out full into the land of Moab, and she comes home very empty. I think it's fair to say that she probably feels that her life has been a failure, And as she says herself later on, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I don't really know what she expected when she went back home. Probably just to be thankful that she had gone back home and that was just that. But God is a surprising God. And his grace is a surprising thing. Sometimes when we're experiencing his chastisement, we feel that he isn't even kind But when it's over, we're surprised by the magnitude of his grace and how tender his mercy is. And as we'll see, her her latter years are abundantly full of God's blessing. Now, I think in some ways the first 
indicator of that, and maybe the first surprise she gets, is that her two daughters-in-law want to go back to Israel with her. Probably a surprise because they've never been there. It's a land they don't know and a land very different from their own. Now, it's easy to miss it in a way in the Scripture, but the Scripture is quite plain that it was the intention of the daughters-in-law to return. I think when you, when you read um, the account a bit superficially, you tend to get the idea that perhaps the two daughters-in-law, first of all, set out just to accompany her, just as an act of Middle Eastern kindness or hospitality, just as, for example, if you got guest yourself, you will probably see them to the door. Well, reading this, you might just think that it was their intention just to accompany their mother-in-law for a part of the journey, for decency and for courtesy, and to kiss them and to say farewell. But the scriptures don't really indicate that. We're told in verse 6 that she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. Now, certainly the emphasis is on herself, that she might return, but she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return. And in verse 7, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, I think it's quite plain from these two verses that the two daughters-in-law set out to go to Israel. Now, to understand their journey these two young women, I think we have to understand the journey in the same spiritual way. Remember, Bethlehem to Moab was backsliding. Moab to Bethlehem was repentance or restoration. For them, it is conversion. It is a new beginning. It is to renounce the past, and it's to begin in a special way a life with God. It's in that spiritual light that we should understand Ruth and Orpah setting out for the promised land. But of course, there's a profound difference between the two of them. The difference is that Orpah actually decides to stay in Moab, whereas Ruth decides to press on to the promised land. And this morning and the next morning that we're together too, I want to look at these two young women and the different choice that they made. And I think in some ways it's expressed at the end of verse 14 where we're told that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave to her or clung to her. Orpah kissed her, but Ruth, well, she cleaves to her. There's a world of a difference between the two things. There's affection in both. But one ends up going back, and the other ends up going forward. Now, before we see the contrast between the women, I want us just to look briefly at what they have in common. Obviously, they have a lot in common in Providence, in the sense that they married two sons from the same family, and so on. But um, I want to consider more the spiritual things that they had in common. First of all, their background was one of spiritual darkness. 
They were born and raised in the land of Moab. Uh, they were worshippers of a false god called Hamosh, and they were ignorant of the true God. And Naomi, of course, tells us in this chapter that when Orpah goes back to her land, she goes back to her gods. Now, in the Hebrew, that word can actually be plural or singular. I think it's probably better just to take it as singular, back to her God. And uh, that was the decision that she made. That was the life that she originally knew. Um, spiritual darkness, spiritual ignorance. Now, of course, in saying that, I hope you remember, and we need to remember, that it's never totally dark. No one born into this world is born in total darkness. We're told that Christ is the true light which gives light to every man born into the world. That has always been the case, that God has illuminated everybody in the world uh, through Christ, even before he came into the world. God has never left himself without witness. There is the light of his glory in creation. There is the light of his own law, which we're told is written on the heart of every man, woman, and child born into this world. In other words, we have a conscience, which is to some degree sensitive to the law of God that is written on the heart. And there's always the promise, whether we know it or not, that if we seek this God who has written his law in our hearts, we will actually find him, and he will find us. In other words, no man is in total darkness. It's important to remember that. And at the end of the day, we give account to God, not for our response to a light that never shone, but to the light that did shine. If you've heard the gospel, you'll give account to God for how you've responded to the gospel. If it was only the law of God that shone in your heart, you'll give account for how you responded to that law of God. Were you sorry for your sins? Did you ask him for salvation? Did you seek a deliverer of some kind? According to our light, so is our response. But relatively speaking, they are in spiritual darkness. But then both of them, both of them in the good providence of God, were brought into significant spiritual privilege. And what's really strange in a way, and there's many strange things, but what's really strange is that it's through a backsliding Christian family that they were brought into spiritual privilege. A Christian out of the way is a Christian still. And um, God can somehow in mysterious ways use Christians who are in that kind of condition. There's ways, I think, in which he doesn't, but there's ways in which he does. That, that never gives us license, of course, to go out of the way. We would have to be foolish to understand it like that. But it's still a humbling and amazing thing that God can take people who have made a wrong decision and gone in the wrong direction and use them to influence others for good. And the stark fact is that Orpah and Ruth both came into the sphere of special spiritual privileges because they were brought into a Christian family, where they saw faith on a day-to-day -day basis. They saw worship. They heard the speech of God's people, and so on. Now, I can't um, overstate the significance of that for yourself, too. Whether your life has changed or not, inside or outwardly, your life has changed 
if you have been brought into the company and fellowship of God's people in a way in which you weren't before. God has perhaps converted people who are near to you or even dear to you. God has taken you in providence or in your place of work, taking you to a people who know and love the Lord. And when that happens, nothing is the same again. This can happen in the strangest places. I read of a man who was sent to prison, and in prison he met a Christian and became converted. Uh, Who would have thought that, you see? But going to prison for him meant that his spiritual privilege increased a hundredfold. He never thought that when he went in. But his spiritual privileges increased a hundredfold, and he was converted through it. Now, for yourself, it is an increase in privilege if you've somehow just been brought into the company of Christian people in a way that you were not before. It's increased your privilege. That's increased your opportunity. And, of course, it increases your responsibility. You're more accountable than you were before. More accountable. How vital that you respond to these things in the right way. Of course, we've got two young women here who respond very, very differently. But we've got people in the pew here today who are responding differently to these things too. Your privileges have increased. I mean, maybe the very fact that you're in church is so different to what was the case maybe 10 years ago. So there's an increased opportunity. There's increased privilege, but increased responsibility too. Now, for some time, of course, during the, well, I don't know, we don't know how many of the ten years this, these two women were in this family, but I would guess a, a good number of them. But for some time, we don't know how they've been responding to the gospel in the house. I would guess, as I mentioned last time, that they probably professed some kind of conversion at marriage. And certainly, as Naomi says, the two young women showed love for the dead. That obviously means those who are now dead but alive at the time. Um, There are some people whose theology leans them to say that they carried on praying for the dead, you see, after they had died. But it doesn't say that really, does it? And a common sense, straightforward reading of Scripture just doesn't indicate that. When Naomi says you showed kindness to the dead, it obviously means the people who were alive but are now dead. In other words, my husband and my two sons. Now that kind of love and care and kindness that they showed to Elimelech, Machlon and Chilion and Naomi herself, these are not infallible marks of Christianity, uh, but they're still good signs. If you were looking at the lives of these two women, you would say, well, it's encouraging that that's how they've responded to Elimelech and to Naomi too. But, of course, what we want to know is what's really in their hearts. What's, What's really going on inside? Is there a spiritual change of some kind? And what I want you to notice in that connection is that God brings matters to a head. Now, he always does. He always does. He, he brings matters to a head. And when Christians are coming into the kingdom, there's always a point at which matters come to a head. In all our lives, things test us, and it works out for us one way or another. 
There are decisive moments. There are critical points in all our lives when we make choices that have lifelong results. And uh, you'll see that happening with these two women. It's as though everything that's happened to them over the last 10 years or whatever is, is building up to what is now going to happen to them at the border of the promised land. The fact is that God is testing them. Uh, he's testing what's really happened in their lives and how they've responded to the gospel, and he tests them in two stages. There is, first of all, the opportunity to go to Israel. Now, that's not like a, a trip for us to the promised land or something like that. It's obviously much, much more than that. We're to understand it in a, in a spiritual way. It's the opportunity to identify publicly and properly with the people of God. It's a huge step for them. It's one thing for them to live in this sheltered house in Moab. The people would probably have been quite tolerant of them living with a Christian family, especially because they were women. I mean, the, the bottom line is that people there would have recognized that as women, they weren't, um, in a sense, as responsible for their position. In other words, they were, they were married women, so they were just being following their husbands and so on. So they would have, it would have been one thing just to live like that in Moab. It's another thing to publicly renounce their land, to renounce their people, and to go with the people of God. That's another thing altogether. But as we noted already, they both set out on the journey. But setting out is one thing. It's interesting that the test isn't finished with that. There's a second stage to their test when God moves Naomi to say, go and return to your house. Return to the house of your fathers. Return to your people. Now, I think I said last time that narrative portions of the Scripture are not always easy to interpret. We've seen that. Unless the Scriptures themselves somehow clearly interpret what's going on sometimes, it's not quite so plain. And there are many who are critical of Naomi at this point. And they say essentially that instead of saying, go back to her daughters, that Naomi should have said something akin to what Moses said to his father-in-law in the wilderness, come with us and we will do you good. That instead of saying, go back to your people, Naomi should have said, yes, good, come with me. And let's set out to the land of Israel, to the house of God, and to the people of God. What should she have said? Well, uh, the fact of the matter is that both these approaches have their place in the Word of God. And God uses both these approaches in his dealings with ourselves. Christ sometimes says, Come and follow me. But in the passage we read in Luke 14, he essentially says, Stop right where you are and have a good think about what you're doing. It's not exactly a common technique in current evangelism to do that, but the Lord does it, and here Naomi does it. And in a sense, it almost doesn't matter. Well, it does matter in terms of what's going on in Naomi's heart, of 
Of course it does. But in a sense, in terms of what's going on in Ruth and Orpah's heart, Naomi's motive almost doesn't really matter because God is using her standpoint as a, as a means to test these two young women to, to see where they really are. And um, God can even use our mistakes to be a test for people like that. I remember, I don't know if I told you this before, but in my first congregation, I remember coming across a woman who had decided after being pretty anxious about it that she would take a step to go to the prayer meeting. Now, in that particular culture, going to a prayer meeting was almost like a, a, a profession of faith. But as she went up to the, to, to the church, she, she was met by somebody who said to her, Oh, what's put you here tonight? Now, I don't know how the man meant it. I honestly don't. Um, but in a way, that almost doesn't matter because she took it, as they say, on the nose. She thought to herself, well, this man thinks I shouldn't be here. And she actually turned round and she didn't go back to the prayer meeting. Now, that's perhaps unusual to that degree. And, and it's sad, too. From whichever way you look at it, it's a very, very sad thing. I think myself that the woman ought not to have responded in quite that way, making every allowance for the tenderness of conscience and also acknowledging the fact that the man was not careful in what he said. But I still feel, do you not yourself, that she should have said, oh, well, because I want to be here. And nobody's going to stop me coming here to the house of God. I feel she ought to say that, but, but that's the way she took it. I suppose we have to be careful what we say to people because people can be very tender at certain times. But nonetheless, as I was saying last Friday night, you know, um, faith is a determined thing and faith gets over obstacles. And I'm puzzled to this day why uh, she allowed that to so settle in her mind that she just didn't go out to the prayer meeting again. Um, who knows? We just have to leave it there. But what Naomi says is very, very stark. And I wonder if she maybe meant it like that. Maybe she just turned round at the border of the promised land and said, Look, girls, I want you to understand that this step you're taking involves serious, genuine commitment. It's not just a matter of sticking with me. There's a choice between two countries, yes, but more fundamental than that, there's a choice between two gods, or if you like, a choice between many gods on the one hand and the one true God on the other. There's a choice between two families. Are, are you really wanting to come with me when I have no other sons and when I have really nobody else? It's plain, by the way, from chapter 2 in this book that Ruth's father was still alive. So probably many of her relatives were too. So it's a choice between two families. It's a choice between two cultures. It's a choice between two ways of life. It's a choice between two religions. It's a choice between faith and unbelief and so on. And it's not just any other country. This is a peculiar country in the sense of a unique country and a privileged country, yes, but a different country, a different people, and a people that are everywhere spoken against. Do you really want to come? Are you really willing? Are you really sure? And I want you to notice a couple of things about this test. 
First of all, the location of it or where it takes place, because the test takes place when they're nearly there. I mean, to set out is one thing. They've gone part of the journey, and then she seems to confront them more starkly. Now, my guess is with you that she confronts them where? Just at the fords of the Jordan. Where Israel is in view, but Moab is in view at the same time. At the very border, at the very gate of the kingdom. And that's where God confronts you too. And that's where all your desires to be a Christian or your desires to follow the people of God or your desires to be reconciled with God, that's where they're tested because he sees to it that you're taken to a place where you meet, well, what? Well, you meet the gateway and you realize that the gate is straight, the gate is narrow. You realize that the gate is called repentance and you realize that you can only walk through it by faith. So it's not a matter of crossing a border. It's a matter of going from one universe to another. The straight gate, the narrow way, which leads to life everlasting. And every Christian will tell you today that you must pass through this gate. God will take you one way or another to this gate. You'll see its narrowness. You'll see that it's entitled repentance. And you'll see that you can only pass through it by faith. And I mean every Christian. You know, there are some people here who perhaps have been Christians since children, since childhood. Maybe you came from your mother's womb as a Christian. That can be so. But I've always, not always, but I've noted, I've noted in life that even those who have more or less grown up as Christians are brought by God pretty soon to a point where they must, as it were, choose him for themselves. Uh, Everybody's brought there. Even people in covenant homes, they, they are brought to some kind of experience where they must pass through this gate very, very consciously and themselves very consciously make choice of Christ as their Lord and Savior. I've seen it. I've seen it. We cannot follow Christ without it. So you can expect the test at the border of the promised land. You can expect the test when you've come a long way on your journey, but you're still not quite in. And you'll notice that it's at that point that the test is intense. Christ confronts us with the concept of self-denial and the need to put Christ first Now, is that not what Christ did in connection with those who had an interest in himself? We read the passage there in Luke 14 and in verse 26. Seeing a crowd, he turned and he said to them, and the words are quite shocking, really. If they're shocking to us, they were shocking to them too. Christ's words often are just plain shocking. It's, it's these words in red, you see. Um, you've got them in red in your Bible, and I know there's a very good theological reason why we shouldn't perhaps have them in red. They should all be black, but uh, sometimes it literally does highlight something to us. The, the words in red are the most shocking ones in the whole of the Bible. They're the most stark. If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, there's no doubt that the rest of the Bible and the rest of Jesus' teaching uh, makes us modify the meaning of the word hate to some degree. It's very obvious that we're not supposed to hate them as we understand that word normally. What it means is that we must be willing, if need be, to renounce. In other words, Christ must simply come first. And the very act of putting Christ first can sometimes appear so severe as to be, as it were, a hatred. Perhaps it's best to to take the words as we find them in the other Gospels and allow them to shed light on them. In Matthew 10 and verse 37, we have very similar words. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, it's all very well in our armchair uh, to believe that all that's okay. But when the test comes, it's not quite so straightforward because God will test whether we love father or mother more than him or whether we love son or daughter more than him. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Or again, as we find it in Mark, chapter 10 and verse 29. Now, in the previous verse, um, Peter says to Jesus that we have left everything and followed you. Again, actually, if you'll excuse me, I can go back further than that, a little further than that, because Christ has tested the rich young ruler, you remember, on the point of covetousness. Not long since we looked at that together. Uh, The rich young ruler thought that he kept all the commandments very well. And uh, then Jesus tests him with the tenth commandment. And he says, very well, he says, I want you to sell everything you've got and to come and follow me. And the rich young ruler was not able to do that. And he went away very sad. And Peter says, uh, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus said, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. No one who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, both of of houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Um, That's the other side of it, you see. On the one side, there's the necessary renunciation and the putting Christ first. But along with that, there is the reception of a hundredfold more than you lose, even in this life, as well as eternal life in the life to come. And really, in all these verses, what Christ is doing to the people who are following them, and there are thousands of them at that point, 
He is just testing their willingness to put himself first. And he's putting before them the things that are liable to get in the way. With many others, it's family things, it's relationship things, it's our sons, it's our daughters, it's our boyfriends, it's our girlfriends, it's our fathers and our mothers. But these are the things. Now, they're the things that'll keep you in Moab. They'll keep you in Moab. They'll make you like Orpah, turn round and turn back. But if Christ is first, you'll press on. That again is what I was saying on the Friday night. Uh, faith overcomes the obstacles. Or to keep the figure that we had earlier, faith squeezes through that narrow gate because it needs to find Christ. Christianity is demanding, yes. I mean, this may raise a whole load of questions in your mind as to what exactly the future may require of you. Um, I'll come to that, but I'll come to it when we turn next time to Orpah and Ruth. But I, I just want to, and the decisions that they made, this is what they're confronted with. Um, but I want you to understand that for many of you, you've come a long way too. These two girls or women came a long way to reach the border of the promised land. Many experiences, and they've even got a desire and a longing to be there, and they're nearly there. And so are you. Maybe 10 years ago, you're nowhere near where you are today spiritually. Nowhere near. But you're still not where you need to be. You're still not where you should be. You're standing at the gate and you know it's called repentance, and you know you need faith to go through it. Why? Because faith sees the beauty of the promised land on the other side. Faith sees not a dry, dusty, barren land, but a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Faith sees Christ on the other side, and faith sees heaven on the other side. And that's why faith opens the gate of repentance and squeezes through it, saying farewell to the old life. And that's where you need to go. You need to walk through. Because if you don't, there's always the possibility that you'll just go back. And go back deeper and further than you ever were before. I've got much more to say about that, but I think I'll just leave it there for the moment. And uh, we'll pick it up next time. May the Lord bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Lord, our gracious God, we pray when we have received leading and guidance to this point that we would press through this gate. We don't know how long we will stand around it. And we pray that we would recognize that when the wind blows, it is then time to set sail. We ask you, Lord, to bless the preached word, to make it fruitful in our years. We need to use these times well. We don't know when the preaching of the word will be taken away from us. We don't know when preachers will be removed from our midst. We don't know when we ourselves may be translated or transplanted to another place. And we ask, O oh Lord, that we would quickly come in 
while we have time and opportunity. In the name of Jesus Christ, O Lord, we pray. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 45 on page 270. Page 270. And we sing to the tune Selma. At verse 10. O daughter, take good heed, incline, and give good ear. Thou must forget thy kindred all, and father's house most dear. Thy beauty to the king shall then delightful be, and do thou humbly worship him, because thy Lord is he. And in verse 14, she's made that decision, and she comes to the king in robes with needle wrought. The virgins that do follow her shall unto thee be brought. They shall be brought with joy and mirth on every side into the palace of the king, and there they shall abide. So 11 and 12, and then uh, 14 and 15. Well, sorry, that's only missing out one verse. Am I right in saying that? Yes. We'll just sing 11 through to 15. Let's stand to sing.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.